Chapter 36 Finn descended onto the quarterdeck, fiddle in hand. The crew parted before her, and their carousing ground to a halt. Mutters and warnings of captain on deck passed among them, as the eyes of men twice her age and some three times her size followed her steps. A voice whispered that she no longer had it within her to make the fiddle sing. The voice was Creech's. It was Hilda's. It was Armand's. It was Phineas Button's. In response, she called on her sacred memories of Bartimaeus and replayed them again and again in her mind. Turn it beautiful. His words came faintly at first, but they came again and again, always softly, always with the insistence of an elder commanding wisdom. Turn it all to beauty. She walked to the rail. When she turned and sat upon it, she heard a sailor in the crowd murmur that she might play them a tune. She hoped he was right. She needed the voices to be wrong. Finn raised the instrument to the cleft of her neck and closed her eyes. She emptied her mind and let herself be carried back to her earliest memory, the first pain she ever knew, the knowledge that her parents didn't want her. The despair of rejection coursed through her. It fathered a knot of questions that bound her, enveloped her. Waves of uncertainty and frailty shook her to the bones. Her body quivered with anger and hopelessness. She reeled on the edge of a precipice. She wanted to scream or to throw her fists, but she held it all inside. She struggled to control it. She fought to subjugate her pain, but it grew. It welled up. It filled her mind. When she could hold it no more, exhausted by defiance and wearied by years of pretending not to care, Bartimaeus' words surrounded her. You got to turn it beautiful. She dropped her defenses. She let weakness fill her. She accepted it, and the abyss yawned. She tottered over the edge and fell. The forces at war within her raced down her arms and set something extraordinary in motion. They became melody and harmony, rapturous, golden. Her fingers coaxed the long, silent fiddle to life. They danced across the strings without hesitation, molding beauty out of the miraculous combination of wood, vibration, and emotion. The music was so bright she felt she could see it. The poisonous voices were outsung. Notes raged out of her in a torrent. She had such music within her that her bones ached with it. The air around her trembled with it. Her veins bled it. The men around fell silent and still. Some slipped to the deck and sat enraptured, like children before a traveling bard. The pain of abandonment ran its course, and Bartimaeus flooded her mind. His rescuing of her, his face as he called Betsy back to life after so many years of silence, his smile as the rope snapped his neck. Every creaky laugh, every fatherly admonishment, every smile between them erupted from the fiddle in a billowing crescendo of grief and love. Broken strands of hair hung from the bow and locks, dancing, sweeping from side to side, driven by the ethereal shape of the song. The music evolved. It became Peter's, gentle, quiet, and steady like the flow of rivers or the crystalline gaze of mountains. 
The rhythm of his hammer and the cadence of his voice ordered her notes into their places and sent them winding forth out into the morning air. The crew gathered around her in awe as the song grew. One man, a sea-hardened old salt, stretched out a darkened arm and touched her upon the ankle. He withdrew his hand and placed it to his lips. Light shimmered across his face. It was as if he had just remembered the most precious thing in his life and could see it before him. The song continued to build and change and fill the air. More strands of the bow's hair frayed until they swirled thick and wild. Finn didn't notice. She was deep inside the song. Insulated from everything around her, she was running through an endless green field toward familiar voices. They called out a strange name as if it were her own. Her clothes were clean, her body strong, her lungs full of lilac air. Tan gave her music now. She fashioned it out of his friendship, out of the pain of his death. The gaping wound in his chest became a blossom of flowers, sanguine as a sun in its last decline. Creech, too, came into the song. He fed it with cruelty and hatred, and it exploded in an effulgence of sound as he dwindled into silence. When the people of her past had come and gone, the music became less specific. It throbbed and pulsed, channeled by elemental forces of fear, love, hope, and sadness. The bow stabbed and flitted across the strings in a violent whirl of creation. Its hairs tore and split until it seemed the last strands would sever in a scrape of dissonance. Those who saw the last fragile remnants held their breath against the breaking. The music rippled across the ship like a spirit, like a thing alive and eldritch and pregnant with mystery. The song held. More than held, it deepened. It groaned. It resounded in the hollows of those who heard. Then it softened into tones long and slow and patient and reminded men of the faintest stars trembling dimly in defiance of a ravening dark. At the last, when the golden hairs of the bow had given all the sound they knew, the music fled in a whisper. Finn was both emptied and filled, and the song sighed away on the wind. She lowered the fiddle and opened her eyes. The crew was ringed around her like a halo. They didn't move or speak, but remained still, many with their heads canted to one side, straining to hear the last dwindling notes as they fled. She took hold of the moment and cherished it with them, with her crew. Finn noted their faces, each one, men who had come to follow her. No matter what their reasons at the beginning, they were here now, and they were hers. They would fight for her. Some would die for her. She picked out the round, meaty face of a boy and committed it to memory. She noted another, middle-aged, with deep lines in his face, his skin burnt dark by the sun. And yet another, old enough to be her grandfather, his deep gray eyes reflecting memories of a hundred crossings and a thousand ports. She found Jack, all somber and swarth, standing at the mast, wrapped as all the rest. And then she saw Nut leaning against the rail opposite her and picking at something in his ear. Seeing him made her smile, and she recalled her first days aboard the rattlesnake. 
She'd been almost carefree then. Nut still was. The sight of him picking at his ears and nose made her laugh. At her cue, the crew joined her in mirth, and as they returned to their merrymaking, she heard Topper on the pier calling out for the plank. With him was a wagoneer and his cargo of three black casks of Madeira wine. Finn ordered the men to bring them aboard, and as they hurried to oblige, she retreated into her quarters to restring her bow. She returned to the deck, and as the bung was tapped and the wine began to flow, she took joy in music again and played for the merriment of the crew until mid-afternoon. When she retired to her quarters, Phineas Button was gone. Finn felt herself lighten. The emptiness of the bed where he'd lain was a relief, and the cabin seemed altogether brighter in his absence. Whether he had gone below to join the crew, or had gone ashore to seek a fairer berth, she didn't care. He knew nothing of her mission, and in all likelihood would only seek the bottom of a rum bottle and his own misery. Good riddance. She placed the fiddle back into its case with a smile, snapped the lid shut, and stowed it under the bed. Someone knocked at the door. Come. Jack crammed his head in. Topper's got news of the coast. Finn nodded, and he entered, followed by Topper and Armand. Topper's face didn't seem troubled. That was good news. But the front of his shirt was powdered with some kind of white dust. He noticed Finn studying him and attempted to swat the powder off his shirt. What on earth have you got into, Topper? His eyes rolled up and he moaned. Oh, pastries! Oh, they were this big! He made a circle with his hands, one that Finn had to admit indicated a respectable pastry. And covered in cane sugar and molasses and stuffed with something that was soft and creamy and smelt like heaven. Oh, Finn, you got to try. Did you find the pastries while you were buying the wine or while you were sniffing the locals for news of the coast? said Jack. Oh, tavern ain't the only place a man can find some news, you know. In fact, I plied the baker's daughter for the better part of the morning and discovered all sorts of useful information. Oh, you did, did you? Jack didn't look convinced. Well, what did you find out? asked Finn. Well, I learnt you can get a tasty commission transporting Madeira wine, and we talked a bit about selling some of them fine pastries back in Charleston. Not sure they'll keep, but I offered to take a crate along with us just to find out. Afraid the baker wasn't so pliable as his daughter, though. He threatened to toss me in his oven if I didn't leave off. Topper frowned and then discovered a bit of molasses gummed on one finger. He stuck the finger in his mouth and sucked on it. What about the coast, Topper? said Jack with a stomp of his wooden foot. Topper removed his finger from his mouth and hid it behind his back. Oh, oh, right. The coast. Well, seems that any English, Dutch, or French ship that gets within a hundred miles of the coast has a good chance of falling to pirates. But the Spaniards, I hear, have paid their duty to the Pasha within the month, so their ships got fair sailing as far west as Joppa. And you heard all this from the baker's daughter, eh? Huh? said Armand. I did, in fact. But I also heard it from the butcher, a fancy German strudel maker, an Italian pie man, and a monger of the finest melons I ever saw. Well, then not a whit of it does us good, said Jack. Finn disagreed. It does us all the good in the world, Jack. If the Spaniards have safe passage, then all we need is a Spanish flag. Jack was about to say something, but he raised his brow and snapped his mouth shut. Armand nodded, and Topper went back to sucking on his finger.
The forgery and fraudulent hoist of a nation's flag was an offense notably despised by maritime powers, and as such, a Spanish merchant's ensign was not something easily bought without following the proper procedures and providing all the necessary paperwork. Finn had no paperwork at all, and no intent to go anywhere near proper procedure. She sent Topper once more ashore, this time with a shopping list, a full coin purse, and a warning not to spend it on pastries. When Topper returned at dusk with a bolt of fresh bleached woolen cloth and a measure each of red and yellow dye, Finn found a use at last for her years of forced stitch work and textile instruction under Sister Hilda. She retreated to her cabin and spent the night dyeing the cloth and stitching it together into a passable ensign. She emerged the next morning with her fingers raw from needle pricks and stained purple by dye. It took her the greater part of the night to finish her work, but in the end she was pleased with it. Five horizontal stripes, two red, three yellow. It was plain, simple, and most importantly, indistinguishable from an official Spanish merchant's ensign. Jack called the crew to muster and gave them a brief inspection to ensure all were present. Phineas Button was among them. Finn was surprised he'd remained aboard. He didn't look at her, didn't even bother to pick his eyes up from the deck. Finn expected to feel disgust when she looked at him, but she didn't. She didn't feel much of anything. He was just another hand, sorry though he may be. She gave the order to throw off lines and get underway. The fiddler's green followed the tide out and chased down the sea toward Gibraltar. As they drew closer to the strait, they sighted more and more ships. The entire flow of commerce into and out of the Mediterranean funneled down to the narrow channel separating Europe from northern Africa. At a mere three leagues wide, even the smallest blockade of the strait could bring Mediterranean trade to a standstill. West of Gibraltar lay the Atlantic, the sailing route of the world, but passed through it, and the waters for a thousand miles became the prowl of Barbary pirates. It was a gateway to a world ancient and mysterious, a world that stretched back through history, past the age of Charlemagne, past the Caesars, past even Rome and Christ himself, a world of civilizations that had raised pyramids and worshipped dark gods, and now spoke only in timeless whispers etched in the crumble of ruins. When they entered the throat of the strait on the fifth morning underway, fog settled thick and low and constrained the air. Finn kept the helm with Topper while Jack paced the deck like a caged animal. A young sailor named Billy Wright perched on the bowsprit with a lantern held aloft in the mist. The wind was steady and easterly, but they couldn't use it. The trade fleets of the dozens of nations converging on the waters of the passage rendered the fog perilous. If the ship outran its lights and bells, it wouldn't see an approaching ship or the jagged rocks of the strait before it was too late. As Jack paced by the mast each time, he struck the bell to warn away any ship hidden in the gray space around them. The peel slapped across the waves and died in the fog like a song muffled in a closet. Though Finn couldn't see it, she felt the closeness of land around her. From beyond the gray veil, she could sense the oppressive weight of two great continents crowding down to the sea, each to kneel and contemplate the nearness of an ancient earthen brother. Occasionally, other bells answered Jack's toll, and ghost-like, amid otherworldly creaks and gentle splashes, another ship would coalesce out of the fog. The crews would stare across the colorless water to appraise each other in silence 
before dissolving again into nothingness. At mid-morning, a faint darkness approached from the port side. It grew and towered above them. Young men on deck made the sign of the cross and muttered prayers. The rock of Gibraltar loomed. It penetrated the dim-lit gray air and rose dark and immovable, jutting up through the fog. The great promontory stabbed out of the gloom like a wedge driven into the heavens. It dominated the sky, the sea, everything around it. The mount was a signpost struck into the air to warn all passers that they were at a point of transition, a point that divided one sea from another, divided the land of the Arab and the Moor from the land of the Anglo-Saxons. They were now sailors in a stranger's sea. The rocks slipped behind them into the west, and Finn ordered the Spanish ensign hoisted while the fog could conceal their treachery. A week sail to Tripoli, said Jack. A week to make ready. The sea widened beyond the strait. It lay in a calm blue sheet, unlike the chopping gray of the Atlantic. They sighted ships night and day, sometimes four and five at a time, but each they saw was content to keep to itself. No one came near, and most made course changes to keep their distance. On Armand's advice, Finn doubled the third watch. The crew grumbled over the change, but they abided it. They knew as well as she did that their biggest threat came at night, when pirates could slip upon them unseen. Four days east of Gibraltar, a sailor of the watch spotted a pillar of smoke on the southern horizon. The crew gathered at the starboard rail and stared at it in silence. A thin black finger snaked up from the sea some leagues distant. Finn stepped up beside Jack and shaded her eyes as she looked at it. What do you think it is? Jack chewed his bottom lip a while before answering. Eh, could be whalers. Could be a signal fire. Could be near about anything. The Barbarie, said Armand. Finn cut her eyes over at him as he sidled up to the rail beside her. Jack didn't speak up to disagree. Could be anything, Finn said in protest. All the same, we'd best double the drills. Jack nodded. Aye. Finn took in a deep breath and whistled it out. Tomorrow I'll talk to the crew. I'll tell them where we're bound and what we mean to do.